0: Welcome to Moments the Podcast. We are your hosts, Sky Gooden and Lauren Wetmore. Welcome back after our break, in which neither of us left our houses, but we stopped recording. So we've got ourselves sort of a revamped season here, both in terms of what we're talking about, who we're talking to, but also all the other things that sort of prop this up which is exciting. We're uh, even dealing with better technology. You have an isolation booth, the last thing anybody needs. It's an isolation shield. Let's not (laughs) get ahead of ourselves.
1: But fans of my microphone will know that I now have a spit guard on it. So (laughs) workplace regulations are being observed.
0: (laughs) Now I just gotta get HR. (laughs) (laughs) So
1: season four. Yeah. I'm very excited about this because it is directly looking at writing. And as this is an art criticism publication, feels like there's some synergy being generated.
0: I'm excited too. I mean, the framework of this season is fairly simple and hopefully even elegant in its design. We're getting writers that we admire or who have taken risks that feel conversation worthy to read a piece of criticism or art journalism or art writing to us. And the case may be that it's been killed actually and not come to publication, or the case may be that it's been published to great controversy or celebration. And I just want to get a sense as do you, I think of, of the greater context in which those moments happen and the process by which they happen and the impact that they have. I think it's remarkable that criticism has not been treated to this same Uh, deep study that, say, journalism has with, for instance, the long form podcast, which I listen to religiously, but it's extremely rare they have a critic on. Mm -hmm. Um, In fact, I think they even sort of nodded to that once and then sheepishly brought on Jerry (laughs) Saltz, did not cut it for me. And and that you also have, you know, Deborah Treisman, the fiction editor at The New Yorker doing conversations with authors Mm -hmm. every month, which I also uh, listen to religiously, but all to say nobody's talking about criticism. And that's odd because the stakes are pretty significant for criticism. And the process by which a piece um, is allowed to be sharp or sanded down, that editing process requires trust and and, um, a platform that's willing to take risks. And so I'm I'm really excited to understand better sort of how some of these uh, pieces have been worn out. So we were throwing names around, which is always the fun part of sort of blue sky in a season, who are the ideal uh, subjects. And we sort of tripped on something fairly obvious, which is that you wrote us a banger of a piece in 2016 (laughs) and have not followed it up with anything. (laughs) (laughs) Which is deeply frustrating to me, but uh, I want to talk. To, I want to talk to you about that piece. And um, <laughs> you
1: want to talk to we... me about
0: my failures. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk to you about this, like unicorn that like wandered into your backyard and <laughs> had it sort of languidly, and and it walked away. Um, why this piece? Why our platform? And and why did you do it when you did it? Those kinds of things.
1: I'm deeply nervous about this and I appreciate that you've led with my faults. <laughs> and maybe we should say that that we're excited about having kind of a roster of writers coming through and that even though like sky interviewing me might feel a little bit solipsistic or at least like the echo chamber in the extreme. Um, mm-hmm. Hopefully that there's a pleasure for, for everybody in, in seeing how like an editor and writer process can work um with people who are also colleagues
0: and I yeah. so friends I mean that's maybe one thing to say is we hadn't worked together um really at much at this point this was this predates the podcast you writing this piece is 2016 and um I mean we had lots of fun together and traveled pretty regularly together, but we hadn't worked together in this capacity since our, our time in grad school. So, I, yeah, I am excited just to to sort of get back into the genesis of this and, and how it came about. I, I have a very fuzzy memory about the, the pitch. But I will yeah. say just to um, preload your reading that it was a hugely successful piece, um, short, dynamic chance-taking, hilarious, like one of the rare moments, I think, in Momus's trajectory where um, I'm regularly splitting into laughter <laughs> on re-reading this piece. Like it doesn't, it doesn't lose its verve. And it was shortlisted for an International Art Criticism Award. So it had, it had an impact. So without any further ado, this is Lauren Wetmore reading Manifesta 11, What Artists and Curators Do for Money published July 28th, 2016, in Momus.
1: It was a very small and no doubt unintentional victory for the curatorial concept of Manifesta 11, What People Do for Money, Some Joint Ventures, that I found it more interesting to consider the biennial by way of its producers and coordinators than its curators and artists. The work involved in manifesting joint ventures between 30 contemporary artists and non-artist professionals must have been titanic, both in quantity and character. Certainly, it would have been more illustrative of the relationship between art and labor than the fruits of that labor. A case in point being artist Mike Boucher's collaboration with Philip Sig, a process engineer at the Verholtzli Wastewater Treatment Plant. This commission brought into the first-floor gallery of the Lowenbraukunst a day's worth of Zurich's, quote, human sludge, i.e., 80,000 kilos of whatever the Zurich swedes are flushing down their toilets, formed into pseudo-minimalist cubes. I'm less compelled by this one-liner, humans shit and other humans clean it up, thus is the world both functional and depraved, than I am in the fine print of the information panel positioned outside the airlock gallery door. Quote, all aspects of the artwork, research, logistics, installation, conservation, and disposal meet the appropriate requirements for public display and environmental safety, unquote. The mind boggles at the labyrinth of logistics and bureaucracy this project must have engendered for the biennial's producers and coordinators. Before they even began tackling practicalities, there must have been a significant amount of reverse engineering, cajoling into existence so that they can be met, official requirements for the public display of human feces. This is perhaps the most challenging and illuminating part of the commissioning and exhibition-making process, when the unstoppably abstract meets the immovably practical and all the resulting micro-incidences of political and ethical implications, emotional and physical absurdity, defeat and triumph. Once, when working on a site-specific installation at a zoo, I received a phone call from the curator of Mammals, threatening to cancel the project because the artist's fabricator had climbed into the African wild dog's enclosure in order to take measurements. After several minutes of politely hysterical dialogue, during which I received a crash course in the frankly terrifying hunting and feeding behavior of sub-Saharan canids, I managed to secure the curator's green light on the strength of the argument that the technician had meant no harm— evidenced by his only having entered the outer defensive ring of fencing and not the inner enclosure of the little hut where the dogs slept. In the end, those measurements proved to be invaluable to the installation. But at no point did I seek to discern whether the zoo's concern was for the technician or the dogs. We each of us have stories about finding ourselves in this perilous zone between the outer defensive ring of the real world's rules and the inner enclosure of the artwork's needs. That is not to say that curators and artists do not play an active role in negotiating these zones. Indeed, their level of skill and interest here is often integral to the success of a project. Presumably, the Manifesta 11 commissions received more than average attention in this regard, given how closely the conceit of the biennial mirrors curator Christian Jankowski's own practice as an artist, which often finds him interlocuting outside the art world. As evidence of the close interaction between the commissioned artists and their professional counterparts, the What People Do for Money website showcases candid photographs of just this. Artist Femen Yemeniz-Landa and meteorologist Peter Wick consider the Swiss skyscape together. Michelle Hulbeck reviews scans of his brain. And Torbjorn Rodland holds forth in dentist Heller Fontana's office while gripping some sort of dental apparatus, etc. In fact, aside from the press downloads, these are very nearly the only images representing the commissions online. It is possible that this inattention to the finished product was born less of a desire to give primacy to the collaborative work of the projects than it was the result of inevitable incompatibilities between the artist's timeline and that of the communications team. For a biennial, consistency between projects and their PR presentation is often valued over the quality or quantity of information available, never mind that each work may necessitate a different communication strategy. Therefore, although one work might be complete with web-ready photographs, another may be hand wringingly behind schedule, and so the common denominator must be sought or staged, thus is a biennial both functional and depraved. These may seem like insignificant administrative details, distractions from reading the actual exhibition. On the contrary, I have found that looking closely at what came after an artist or work was selected can quickly reveal how and why decisions critical to the artist and work were made. Unlike a professional framer whose entire visit to a gallery could be spoiled by spotting an overcut passepartout, or the way an AV technician may experience the quality of a projection as directly linked to the projector, Looking closely at what is going on around the works and what people do for money greatly improved my ability to understand some of its more baffling curatorial decisions. Consider again, for instance, the first floor of the Kunst, which upon my visit contained the work of three artists, the aforementioned Zurich Lode by Mike Boucher, Inflatables by Bakhti Baxter, and Video Works by Roman Statina. Unfortunately, the overwhelming smell of human waste made it terribly difficult to give the latter two works more than a moment's attention. This was a particular shame in the case of Statina's videos, precisely composed meditations on the obsolescence of radio play Foley artistry. Specifically, Studio No. 2, Slapstick, 2013, is a five-minute-long film that requires focus on the part of the viewer to parse the subtle aural differences between first- and second-generation audio after effects. Needless to say, focusing my senses, oral or otherwise, was precisely the last thing I wanted to do, while standing in such close proximity to 80 metric tons of shit. So, on the one hand, pairing these two works appears to have been a poor curatorial decision, detrimental to the work of both the artists and the audience. On the other hand, the Manifesta 11 guidebook, presumably printed before Boucher's installation, indicates that three additional works were slated for this gallery. A slide series by Martin Kippenberger and Akim and elements of commissioned work by Yevgeny Antufiev and Yemenez Landa. It's not unusual that artworks should shift around at the last minute. This is the hazard of including floor plans in a guidebook printed before the show has settled into its final form. That said... This little glance at the intended placement of several prominent elements in the exhibition combines intriguingly with rumors, and be utterly unsubstantiated, that the magnitude of the stench was in fact not anticipated, that technicians were retching during the installation, that there are now concerns about the gallery walls continuing to off-gas once the installation is removed, thus jeopardizing its ability to claim air quality in keeping with high-level conservation standards. Rumors aside, the fact that a Kippenberger was planned for that gallery does seem to suggest that at a relatively late stage, Boucher's work was neither considered a threat to the safety of the other works, nor the ability to properly experience them. However, once this changed, whether by decree of the curators, conservators, the artists themselves, or the dealers, that perilous zone must have cracked wide open resulting in a series of negotiations and decisions that may have had very little to do with the finer academic aspects of curatorial practice. Add to all of this the fact that there was more than one curator in the mix. Jankowski was joined by Francesca Gavin, who co-curated the historical exhibition, Sites Under Construction, a sort of through-line of existing works that provided the opportunity to see loads of terrific art presented in a way that managed to be both didactic and opaque— Statina's work was part of this project, as was Kippenberger's, while Boucher was part of the program of commissioned works, or joint ventures. There were several points of clash between the historical exhibition and the joint ventures, but what both projects seem to agree upon is a dichotomy between people who do things for money and the Manifesta 11 artists who, to paraphrase the guidebook, quote, portray, question, and interact with ideas and processes of occupations. Although Jankowski does acknowledge his changing guilds from artist to curator, he doesn't appear to see the role of the curator as an overarching joint venture with the commissioned artists. Perhaps because curators are also not seen to be professionally occupied in the same way as, say, a waste treatment engineer? There is a difference, apparently, one that Manifesta 11 labors to delineate under the auspices of bringing the two together. And maybe the only reason I was able to stomach this blind elitism was because I know exactly what artists and curators do for money. They produce and coordinate biennials.
0: Let's start with the timing and why this biennial, because I know having had so many conversations with you over wine or <laughs> stomping around in the... Um, inner enclosures of exhibits, that this is not the first time you've been frustrated, let down or pushed to a place of absurdity around reading an exhibition's success or being able to perceive its failures in a way that I think is quite unique to you. First of all, we should say that you have curated around the world and with any number of institutions, both large and small. So you do have, of course, this, this personal relationship to the work and a kind of patience for it but also impatience for it if that makes sense so maybe just set the stage a bit why this biennial where were you at in your thinking around curating and exhibition making um and why did you choose to write when you did I saw
1: this biennial coming off of the second um freeze project season that I had worked on first season, I was assistant curator and then I was associate curator for the second one. And it was at a time when I was deeply experiencing the really, really important connection between like production and curatorial practice. And I had an intense impatience with curatorial practice or any kind of curatorial conceit that was not aware of the production implications and also interested in getting into it with production. And by production, I mean budgets, labor, fabrication, shipping, all of these kinds of elements that are seen to be sort of the... um, you know, the annoying administrative things that a curator needs to do, the things that keep one away from those higher arts of like research and studio visits. And um, mm. because working on these freeze project commissions was so production heavy and because the people I was working with, um, the assistant curator, Greta Hewison and Justin O'Shaughnessy, who is our production manager, because they made the production of it so fun, And because it was all about making things happen in very strange spaces and very condensed timelines, that became like that kind of puzzle that you need to put together. And having to make those decisions quickly on a day to day basis made it very, very clear to me that when you are commissioning new work, the production is almost more important than the curatorial input. I would say that the artist's work, of course, is the most important. And then the liaison between the production and installation staff is the second most important. And yeah, I think it was also at a time when this idea of the curator as some kind of intellectual, you know, heavyweight was was so very present for everybody and I just it was just driving me fucking crazy. <laughs> Like, who's making this? How much are they getting paid? What process are you using to get this done? Like, how are you and your artist and your intellectual conceit tied to the making of this work? Because isn't that the essentially interesting part of the commissioning process? We're there to see, or at least to understand, or maybe to be able to touch in some kind of, you know, oblique way, how this came to be. Yeah. And if we want to pretend that it came to be out of thin air, as I find a lot of artists and curators would like to pretend, then I'm just simply not interested in that because it's not true.
0: Right. So you had at that point, um, this work with Freeze as a kind of uh, maybe example of how things can be done spontaneously, successfully with an eye to process and production that values the art, that values the um, negotiations that happened between commissioning and erection. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to better understand what else was at work at that moment for you, such that this was the moment to publish this piece. And I don't mean to make so dramatic a question of this, except that you have not written anything before or after that, (laughs) (laughs) at least not publicly. Um, so it does seem striking, right? That this should happen when it did and that it should be so singular for you.
1: I think that a lot of a lot of the writing that I have done has been associated with positions I've held. So I haven't written a lot independently. And right. this was a moment at which I wanted to start doing that. I kind of had to force myself to think, OK, if you want to start publishing independently, if you want to stop essentially writing curatorial texts for other curators... <laughs> then you have, to, uh, you have to actually write something. So for me, there was a frustration around seeing, seeing the way that kind of labor practices and labor relations were being trotted out in a really facile way uh, with this exhibition. My growing understanding of how production plays such an essential role in the curatorial process and then also my desire to publish more. Also, as somebody who hasn't published a lot independently, you know, I kind of wanted the path of least resistance, (laughs) which I thought would be an editor that I could trust to have my best interest at heart. Somebody who I could trust to form a text with and that something wouldn't kind of get out of my hands. Mm -hmm. In that way, I thought about you. I'm wanting to, to give it to you because I think at the same time, it's also like when I write something,
0: I send it to you anyways. Right. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Why wouldn't I just send this
0: to you? Right. But I'm just pulling up your pitch email. Cause I was trying to remember how this whole thing happened. I had this suspicion that it was just over drinks one night, but it sounds like you, no, you actually pitched me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is surprising. Um, And the pitch was fairly clean. It said simply, do you have anyone lined up to write about Manifesta? I've spent a day with it, spoken to some people, and have a few things I want to write through. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But you do clarify it would be curatorial criticism. So maybe we can move to that. Did you notice, as I'm sure, I have a feeling the answer to this is just like a a flat yes, that there was a real dearth of criticism or, or art writing that was tackling curating Despite this kind of heightened, as you say, moment in curatorial practice, um, the heightened power it was that it was being wielded with, still there was maybe just not enough critical attention, or or very little um, that was meeting that practice and looking at the ways in which it sort of separates from the shaft of art itself. Yeah,
1: I think that's a I think that's a really important and difficult question. Um, I think that people who Our practicing curators themselves, or at least who have, um, who operate within the field, are often the people who are best positioned to provide curatorial criticism or criticism to a curatorial practice. Um, But I also think that um, being a curator is, being a successful professional curator is a lot about not pissing people off. and. I think that this I mean you tell me but I think this is very I'm sure very similar to art critics and art writers and artists and um it is
0: What do you mean by that sorry like, similar how in that
1: when you you're putting yourself on the line by I saying see. something negative about a colleague which is not to say that you know right. I consider myself to be in 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 the same stratosphere as Francesca Gavin or Christian Yankowski, but at the same time, you know, if I was ever going to apply for a job with either of them and they did a quick Google, Mm -hmm. I'd be pissed off.
0: (laughs) Probably wouldn't hire me. (laughs) So how much of that were you weighing when you pitched or did you just, um, you know, the the desire to publish more independently and to hold some of these problems to the fire outweighed any personal concern.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think I was also at a, I was at a point which I have continued since then of just thinking I'm tired of listening to all of the kind of like chow chow behind the curtain. I want to actually have a public conversation about how I think and feel and how I can imagine intelligent and impactful people around me are thinking and feeling. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I will say also that like in publicly declaring things, you do kind of make decisions about how your future can go. Like I was thinking about a, a text that I wrote for Madame which is a publication um, out of Egypt. And it was a, it was a text um, that was, I mean, it was at heart like pro-Palestine. And that was a, you know, it wasn't a moment where I needed to think, oh, am I going to publicly come out as pro-Palestine? Because um, that's not a question for me, but to, yeah, to publicly and on the record, have your views known is a way that you make decisions about your future and the way that
0: you establish your position. Right, right. And when it comes to some of these murky ethics being Played out publicly, yeah. and you're taking a hard line on some of that. Uh, it also has a way of sort of setting rigorously a scaffold by which you will you will hang your own e- your own ethics and your own edict going forward in your work. Exactly. Say as somebody who procrastinates, I find it
1: easier to agree to a deadline that somebody else has set, and then I will meet it because I cannot be responsible to myself. And it's the same way when you kind of like publicly just get, declare a position. It's like, OK, well, that's that's what I have to stand by now.
0: Yeah, <laughs> Holding yeah exactly. My, a my world just got narrower exactly. in important ways. Exactly, right? <laughs> yeah, I think it's a, yeah. Yeah, it's a good exercise. So I want to get into a few of these lines here that are so powerful and just move the piece forward in these giant leaps, um, with such concision for a thinker as you are, who is so insistent on complexity, you have a propensity for bon mots, um, <laughs> i.e. humans shit and other humans clean it up. Thus is the world both functional and depraved. That's the one liner that you squeeze out the corner of your mouth uh-huh. in that same <laughs> moment of sort of like public editing, which I love. Um, So talk to me about editing. How easily or not are these tidy, piercing moments arrived at? How difficult or not is it to let them stand and not play them to the ground? And what is the thinking and writing process for you um, in terms of critical arrival at those sharp, almost weapon-like moments?
1: I think this is where I like writing the most. I liken it to... You're having an argument with somebody and you don't necessarily say exactly what you mean. And then you go away and for maybe 48 to 36 hours afterwards, you're just rolling the conversation over and over in your head and you're polishing your comebacks to that kind of fine edge. And then you Mm -hmm. you replay the argument with the person and you can just like shoot it at them like an arrow, like, well, if that's what you say, this is what I say, you know, like that. Mm -hmm.
0: I'm sure. Do you know that? uh, Yes. Yes. I'm a human with a heartbeat. I know what you're talking about.
1: (laughs) Thank you. And so I, yeah, I do that a lot. And I think that for this piece in particular, and for any kind of writing, if I can become kind of obsessed with that idea of like polishing a sentence to that fine point and it becomes less a sentence than a retort to the entire kind of the entire conceit of of the thing that I'm writing about you know and that can happen as you're walking or if you're at the grocery store or it is a thing that is constantly running through your mind, it's, a, it's obsessional in the same way that running through these kind of like tiny personal defeats are obsessional too. thinking about things you want to say to somebody you love can also be obsessional. Um, it just so
0: happens in this case, it was, it was more of an argument than a love letter. Joan Didion famously says that she writes to know what she thinks, uh, which I feel is, is more or less my approach as well. I I was just writing a catalog essay yesterday where, you know, by page five, I knew what I was trying to say. And then I I was sort of rippling back through the text to pull the water towards that, um, that edge. But I wonder if you, it sounds as though you're thinking these flinty, you're sharpening the flints of those moments in your mind rather than writing to find them.
1: I think it's both. Um, So I will take notes um, and then I will revisit those notes. But I often find that those notes don't actually become the finished product. They are more um, a kind of framework around which I'll write. Um, And then within that, the actual sentence as a construction is something that forms in my mind and then goes down on the paper.
0: Oh, wow. Okay, cool. No wonder you don't do this often. That sounds exhausting. <laughs> Let's talk about the very first line of the piece, which is a very successful line for how much it accomplishes, how clean it is despite its own interruption, um, and how many players it basically um, throws to the, to the mat before you've even like fully taken an introductory breath. Here's the line. It is a very small and no doubt unintentional victory for the curatorial concept of Manifesta 11, what people do for money, some joint ventures, that I found it more interesting to consider the biennial by way of its producers and coordinators than its curators and artists. Walk us through how that line comes to be. Is it something you arrive at at the end or did you start at the start and keep running from there?
1: Yeah, I start at the start. So I do, like I said, I do all of the notes and then I have these kinds of like, sharpened obsessional retorts Mm -hmm. and then I start at the start and I end at the end and I go Mm
0: -hmm.
1: I go Mm -hmm. straight through it And I will say, as I was, as I was reading it just now and like struggling through some of these sentences, I think what I do is that I would write like for this sentence, I would probably write three sentences and then find a way to combine those three sentences into one. Mm, There's mm -hmm. something about, um, concision that I have become really, really invested in, Mm -hmm. um, I don't Mm want to linger. I don't want to uh, take up space. There's this word that you use to describe writing something, blousy, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that I'm always thinking of. I do not want to be blousy in my writing because I... Blousy or
0: baggy, which is worse stuff. Baggy.
1: (laughs) (laughs) it's true i think you yeah you should have like some kind of like nuclear or what (laughs) what is Ah! what is that clock where it's like how close are we to nuclear meltdown or whatever (laughs) it's like are we at blousey or are we at baggy (laughs) but yeah like extreme concision is very Mm -hmm. important to me but also Making sure that if there's going to be a sentence, it's got to communicate either information or a perspective. Because um, I, I do find that the, the art writing that frustrates me the most is writing that is, I will say too personal, but... It, You know that I'm not, I'm not uninvested in the personal, but that rests on kind of the laurels of, of, uh, looking at somebody's personal life as though everybody else is not living an important personal life too. And then... On top of that, this kind of idea of like metafiction or a poetics of expression as somehow something that is not intensely difficult. And maybe one, maybe two people have done it right and with intelligence to gesture towards any kind of looseness, be it blousiness or bagginess, like you have to be... There's just so much genius involved in that. And I think that if you don't have that, which I don't think anybody does, you have to go for concision. There's at least a yeah. like, workmanship around that, that we can all achieve.
0: But that isn't to say that shorter is always better. And and there are moments when flourish should be allowed, right? It's all, it's for me, it's about composing a score. You know, when do you let yeah. the percussives um, be all that you can hear? And when do you bring in the strings? Yeah, exactly. Concision doesn't necessarily, to me, mean short.
1: It's more just, uh, yeah, the relative size of the load to the vehicle, let's
0: say. Well, since we're talking about loads, uh, <laughs> there are, are we several not, moments. Guy? I think it's a winner. I don't see us cutting this. There are several moments where you, I think with great restraint, discuss the scent that was overwhelming (laughs) (laughs) the experience of being with this work it's a rare it's a rare indictment of so much that is out of the artist's control that somehow doesn't spray on the work itself this sorry I'm not being very articulate here and now I'm just thinking of poo metaphors Brain on the please continue there's no Uh, (laughs) splashback. I don't and I know this years of this piece is a few years old but if you have a memory of sort of how you were able to keep these kind of indictments separate from the artist I know you are a curator who cares about artists Mm -hmm. Uh, you're a writer who cares about artists um And so I can only imagine that that was a a cause for concern was that this this effort to address and to some degree ridicule the curatorial Mm -hmm. failure of this exhibition, that it should not lay waste to its artists in that same moment, I, I would imagine would have been important to you.
1: Yeah, I think that you are, I mean, I thank you for giving me so much credit there. Um... Part of my concern about that work, be it from the position of the artist or the curator, was, as I said in the text, that all of the work that was in the same room as it was basically completely um, unseeable, because it was impossible to be in that room because it smelled like shit. (laughs) And I know that, like, particularly for for an exhibition or a biennial, like, manifesto, where you have artists whose work is being shown in an international or an inter-European context, not necessarily for the first time, but on that scale, probably for the first time, and to have that opportunity, like, so... (laughs) Kind of grotesquely ripped away from them is, mm-hmm. I mean, it's awful and hilarious. Um, so my my concern, <laughs> as I said in that text, was for was for Roman Stestina, which I I really really did like his work. I guess my concern was less for Mike Boucher because it was clear to me that this work had been given all of the resources that it needed. And that there was an idea that it was probably going to be like maybe one of the figure piece works of the exhibition, which it did end up being, um, you know, for, for good or bad. And to me, although I do not find that work top to bottom at all interesting... The real issue was its placement within the exhibition, because had it been given its own space, had it not been within the institution, there wouldn't have been this kind of like knock-on effect of Mm -hmm. a work that was perhaps ill-conceived or just lazy, I would say conceptually lazy, um, kind of messing it up for everybody else involved. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And to me, that that's not the that's not the fault of the artist. That's the fault of the curator. Yeah. Um, it's not necessarily about fault. It's more just about not reading something through to the end or having potentially a different idea about what's important.
0: Yeah. I mean, those are uh, allowances right there that show a kind of generosity of thinking that could very well have gotten in the way of writing lines like, thus is a biennial both functional and (laughs) depraved. I mean, it is rare, I find, that a curator, in particular a curator, can boil things down to such tidy, declarative points, Um, because very often a curator is... Party to so many people's agendas, right. interests, and and frankly, their own chief among them, as you say. Yeah, um, trying not to piss people off means that you're often um, sort of training around these bulky cars of thanks, consideration, nuance, and complexity. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I
1: can't say it better myself. Like, I I know that. I think I think also in my uh, work as a curator, I I work mostly. Or I try very hard to work behind the scenes and work in production and work directly with artists and not be, um, yeah, not be the front man who has to do that kind of uh, parsing.
0: So let's get into, um, we're going to do some rapid fire questions in a moment, but I want to get a sense of the impact. Um, Of course, Momus was only a year old when when this was published. That's so crazy. isn't that wild? But this was only published at like month nine or something crazy. So it's not as though we had a major audience and let's be clear, we don't to this day, but do you have a sense of how this landed? And and if any of, for instance, the key players that you were writing about read it or et cetera? I have no sense about whether or not the key players read it.
1: Um, I can only assume they did not. But Mm. I did hear from a few people whose opinions I respect that it made them laugh. And Mm. there was a, a woman in particular, I won't say her name, but she's very smart. And I've always kind of been a little bit intimidated by her. And at the time she was going to university in Zurich and she sent me an email that was like kind of slyly congratulatory about this work. And it really just, it made my life. I will say though, that I remember when you and I were working on getting the images for the publication, that the biennial team was really, really um, enthusiastic about getting us the images. I don't know if you remember this. It was like, not so well. they were very, you know, they were like, yes, of course, reply all, here it is. <laughs> Um, uh-huh. And then there was something that we needed after the after the review had been published. I can't remember what it was, and we were like, "Oh, we'll just contact that like incredibly helpful woman who was so enthusiastic," <laughs> and it was like radio
0: silence. <laughs> oh that's funny yeah always get your provisions before you go camping you don't know what bears are in the wood um some rapid fire questions because why not these are questions that I think we both agree we wish we could ask of the writers we adore um and so why not and for those at home Lauren has not seen these questions before or not most of them so (laughs) Okay, go. It's such a lie, you. you wrote half of them. Do you like writing?
1: No, it's incredibly painful. When do you write? I find I write best the second that I wake up. I need to stay in bed and not have any kind of brain stimulation other than the writing. I need to be like a completely clean slate.
0: Do you use a thesaurus? Yes, a lot. <laughs> I find that writers not admitting to this is like not admitting you use (laughs) points. How much do you delete? Do you edit as you go or after you've written? Mm, I feel like my deleting
1: comes in the note-taking process. I feel like I want to set everything up before and then I write it as though it's already written. Mm, Yes. Who
0: do you write for? One of my favorite questions to ask a writer. Myself. Shut up.
1: I mean, because nobody's reading it. It
0: went from such self-love to such (laughs) self-negation. Do you
1: ever write under the influence? Yes. And I think like many um, overly romantic people, I thought that I wrote better when I was under the influence. Uh, Mm -hmm. But I don't think that's true
0: hence the clean slate of the morning being preferable yeah I feel you
1: yeah I feel you do you read or write in other languages I read in French when I have to I would like to read in French for uh for pleasure right um what do you wear or what is your mise en scene for writing yeah I mean ideally it's it's in bed so whatever I was wearing to bed um Mm -hmm. and then Yeah, I cannot stress enough that it needs to be immediately upon waking. (laughs) It's like I won't even let myself pee. Like I have to. (laughs) No
0: synapses can fire. So superstitious. I love it. Yeah. By the way, I think Johanna Faitman said something very similar. Oh, really? So you're in good company. How do you know when it's done? When
1: I get to the last line. (laughs) I really love having like a punchline or having that yeah. kind of like mic drop moment. And yeah. unless that's there, um, I will struggle with it. I find like there are some writers that I really respect who just cannot stick a landing. Like, yeah. Or I mean, not even writers, but like David Lynch, for instance, like that man can just not end something properly, which is such, <laughs> <it's> so <laughs> annoying because the rest of it is so good. But like, same thing with David mm-hmm. Foster Wallace. Like those endings really, really stretch on like taffy. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, for me, like I, I really need to stick that landing, or else it feels mm-hmm. it doesn't feel right.
0: Mm-hmm. It's interesting as an editor, and I try to take this into my own writing as well. It's often the case that the first paragraph and the last paragraph need to be cut. Really, um, that someone has ended. Before they realize they've ended, it <gasps> yeah. would devastate but, me to have the first and the last
1: fit. I mean, those are the most important
0: ones. That's usually just like the spit at the corner of your mouth before you begin speaking and the sound of your lips closing after you're done. Like those paragraphs are, are just just bad noises out of your face. Most the the
1: listeners, time. this is so, why I haven't written. Okay. like <laughs> <laughs> Listening to this every day. <laughs> <laughs> corner. you nice. mouth.
0: <laughs> Which writer, dead or alive, would you like to have a drink with? None. I don't like
1: to. I don't like to meet people I respect. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you said you don't like to drink, and I was like, well. <laughs> No, I don't like to meet artists
1: I respect. I find it often uh, ruins the illusion. Mm, Wow,
0: that's very self-disciplined. Okay. Which writer do you emulate the most, consciously or not? I would really like to think that I emulate
1: Renata Adler. Mm. There's a dryness and a humor and kind of a a little bit of incredulity Mm -hmm. that I love in her writing to the point that when I'm reading, it feels like my own mind talking to me. Um, Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, I can only hope that I would in some way emulate her writing a little bit. Oh,
0: I love. I was just a year ago on your couch in Brussels reading your Renata Adler collection um, with deep pleasure and thinking of you the whole time. So That that squares for me. Mm -hmm. Um, What do you read before you write? if that's a different answer than
1: Renata Adler. Yeah, I think that this is a, that's a really good question because it's something that, it's like one of the only things about art writing or art criticism that I that I remember learning in our grad school uh, experience mm-hmm. of criticism and curatorial practices. <laughs> um, and I think it was actually Charles Reeve who was telling us about like a trick of the trade of writing. And he said, if you're finding it hard to start, because it's always hard to start, that's always the hardest part. Um, open up an essay or, or a piece of writing that you really like and just start writing it out almost as automatic Mm -hmm. writing. And then at the point that you feel ready, take over and start writing your own thing that really stuck Mm -hmm. with me. And I use it, Um, I use it a lot and the essay I use is David Foster Wallace's A Supposedly Fun Thing I'll Never Do Again about about his trip on a carnival cruise ship. It always brings me to something funny and uncomfortable and a little bit deeper than where I would have started
0: out from on my own. Moments the Podcast is edited by Jacob Irish and assistant production from Mitra Shiram. This season's music is written by Ulysses Castellanos, a piece titled Gonzalo on the Beach, with source material from Charlie Hayden and Gonzalo Rubacaba. I would like to thank Lauren Wetmore for kicking off the season. You're very welcome. It would be super meaningful if listeners can consider donating to the podcast through our Patreon account. You can find us at patreon.com slash momusart. We're a very small team, as you know, working in an especially difficult year, and your contributions make a very real difference.
1: Thanks to all of you who are already contributing. We're very grateful. This has been episode 25 of Momus, the podcast.